This, this morning we end with a very important topic, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, just parts of it, but before we go any further, can we pray? Lord, thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for life, life now, life everlasting. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Unveil to us the mysteries of the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sisters and brothers, what do we do when death strikes? How do we keep going when we've watched the gravediggers lower the body of our spouse or our parent or our sibling into the ground? What do we do when we hear that a little two-year-old boy named Logan, a a member of Sunrise CRC here in Lafayette, was in an accident that many of us feared would take his precious little life? How do we respond when the sins of hate and racism lead to a death in Charlottesville, Virginia? What do we do? What do we say when death deals us these mighty blows? How do we cope when brokenness of this world seems unbearable? Friends, we grieve. We grieve because it hurts. And it hurts because this is not the way God intended things to be. Death and brokenness were never part of God's original design. And every fiber of our being knows it, doesn't it? We know we were created for more. As Jerry Cole, who used to sit right here, said in his final days, I just want more. And don't we all? We want more time with our loved ones. We want more hugs, more kisses, more opportunities to tell them just how much they mean to us. And we want more in this life. We want more love, more peace, more beauty, more justice, more belonging. In this life, we do get experiences of these good things of God And yet we know that there's got to be more. So when we are faced with death and brokenness, we grieve. We grieve because we know we were made for more. We were made for a life that never ends, a life full of God's shalom, of perfect peace and joy without pain or hate or suffering. We were made for more. But friends, as Christians, we grieve differently. We grieve in hope. We grieve in hope because we believe that the more that we long for is promised to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We grieve in hope because we believe that death and brokenness do not have the final word, either in this age or in the age to come. For friends, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It is this belief that we proclaim so boldly at the end of the Apostles' Creed that keeps us going when we face grief and suffering of all kinds. And it is this belief that we're going to be unpacking a bit today. 
Before we go any further, though, I need to preface with two things. First, as usual, there is way more to be said on this topic than we can fit in this morning. (laughs) Many of you have questions, pressing questions, that aren't going to be addressed today. So please feel free to talk to Pastor Brandon or me at another time. Second, with that being said, know that we don't have all the answers. If you think we do, you clearly haven't spent enough time with us yet. But I say that especially in regards to this important topic of the resurrection and life everlasting because it's important to note that Scripture doesn't actually give us that many details. The Bible does provide a few helpful metaphors and images. Most importantly, we have accounts of the resurrection life of Jesus, and that gives us clues about what our resurrected lives will be like as well. But friends, we don't have exact blueprints as much as we might like them. But that being said, Scripture does say a few things, and these few things are really important to pay attention to. Because what we think about the life to come will shape absolutely everything we do in the here and now. It will shape every way we think, every way we act. I'll give you some practical examples of that later. But first and foremost, I want to say that the most important thing Scripture says about this topic, most important, friends, it's true. There really is a resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And that's the best news we could ever hear. So to unpack a little bit of this good gospel news, we're going to use the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll tell you, it's a really dense chapter. It might make your mind real a little bit. I had to read it over like, I don't know, 20 times maybe this week. It's just really dense. This morning, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, and I'm going to read it much more quickly than um, I than I would encourage um For your personal time, I encourage you to read the whole chapter and to read it really slowly this week. Just keep reading it and reading it. It's really dense and really beautiful. Today we'll just read part. But before we read, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Christ our single concern. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. We'll begin in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God Because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. 
For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We skip down to verse 32b. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober and right mind and sin no more, for some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another of the stars. Indeed, stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. I told you it was dense, wasn't it? (laughs) Read it again this week. I encourage you. Okay, folks, we're going to unpack this a little bit. First, talk about the resurrection of the body. I don't know about you all, but I used to read this line of the Apostles' Creed and and think that it was only referring to the body of Jesus. Yes, I believe that Jesus was bodily resurrected. I affirm that. But then, then later I learned from passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and others and studying historic Christian faith, that God actually promises our bodily resurrection, too. Did you all know that? 
It's really possible that I missed a few sermons growing up. I know I did. But I also believe it's true that this part of the Christian faith has largely been overlooked in our recent past. And there are real reasons for that that I'm going to go into later. But first, it's just important to clarify that the church, from its very beginning, has always believed in a bodily resurrection from the dead. Not just of Jesus, but us, too. Isn't that incredible? So now in regards to this, perhaps you, like I did for a long time, had all these questions reeling. So a few of them. How? How how will God raise bodies? What about bodies that long ago disintegrated? What about bodies of those who have been cremated? Or bodies that have been mutilated in war or donated to science? How is God going to resurrect them? Well, friends, this is where we need to trust in a God that is much bigger than we can understand. If we believe that God made the whole cosmos out of nothing, that human beings were created by simply having God breathe breath into dust, I'm pretty sure that God can figure out how to resurrect us. If you're unsure, just read Ezekiel 37 this week, where God brings to life a whole valley of dry bones. We don't know exactly how God will resurrect us, but we can trust that God will do it. No matter what shape we're in, no matter where we are, God can do it. It's good news, isn't it? Amen. So that's that's a how. Now we go to a what. What will our resurrected bodies look like? Again, we don't have exact answers, but we do have accounts of Jesus' resurrected body, and that gives us clues about what ours might be like as well. So Jesus, his body at the resurrection was somewhat like his former body. Consider this. Others looked at his face and they recognized who he was. Jesus ate food with his disciples. He even invited people to touch his flesh, to feel his wounds. It was still his body. And yet the resurrected Jesus was also significantly different. At times he stood beside people in a garden or walked along a road with his followers, people who had known and loved him for years, and yet they couldn't perceive who it was. His identity was somehow hidden at that time. And get this, the resurrected Jesus, he walked through doors and could vanish in an instant. Can any of you do that? I can't. It would be really nice at times, but maybe in the next life. (laughs) (laughs) So what we can conclude from these gospel accounts is that the risen Jesus, he wasn't just the old Jesus given a shot of new life, like they performed CPR and he was resuscitated. He wasn't just resuscitated, he was resurrected. And a resurrection body is a transformed body, a glorified body, a body that is kind of like the former one, not just annihilated, but also different in some really powerful ways. Friends, this is what we are promised too. And I think this is what Paul is trying to get at in 1 Corinthians when he talks of the physical body and the spiritual body. The resurrected body is still a body. Jesus wasn't a formless ghost just floating around. 
but his body was different. It was more glorious, a body that in many ways was not bound by the limitations of this present age, especially not sickness or death that plague us now. And this is what we are promised too. As we read in verses 52 to 53, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable. For the perishable body must put on imperishability, and the mortal body must put on immortality. So notice what it does not say. It does not say that our bodiless souls will float off to heaven and just play harps in the clouds for eternity, like so many of our cartoons depict, which growing up I always thought was a really boring advertisement for the afterlife. Like, what person wants to just sit on a cloud doing this all day? And how do they even do that if they don't have bodies? I, that just always perplexed me. I don't know. That's not the picture that Scripture depicts. Scripture doesn't say that our bodies are just annihilated and that our ghosts carry on forever, like we sometimes think about in Halloween. Rather, it says our body puts on imperishability and immortality. If this sounds strange to you like it did to me at first, it's because this is the water we swim in today. This idea that bodies and souls are completely separate. It's called body-soul dualism, and it is so prevalent in our culture. To try to help explain this, uh, uh, the water that we swim in, the ways that... The reason why some of this is so confusing to us as Christians is um, I'm going to read to you from this book on Christian funerals by Thomas Long, and he explains this body-soul dualism really well. So see if this sounds familiar of, of perhaps what you've heard people say or what you've thought yourself. So Thomas Long says that today there is a popular notion that the body is just a shell, And that the real me has nothing to do with the dead body. That the real me is elsewhere after death. And this notion comes from a deeper worldview, a very old and widely shared religious perspective in its own way. That is is not the Christian perspective. And that is that the real me is an immortal soul. And that souls and bodies are two completely separate things. That is to say that the real me and the body that hauls the real me around have only a temporary and stormy relationship. I like that. A temporary and stormy relationship. When death occurs, the pure soul is released at last from the always limited and troublesome and decay-prone body, leaving behind, well, just a shell. The sharp separation of spirit and body and the devaluing of the body that inevitably accompanies it runs like a ribbon through Western thought. It says the soul is divine, the body profane. Does any of that sound familiar to you? It's really popular thinking, even in Christian circles. But that's not what we want to hear when a dead one, when a loved one passes away, do we? Thomas Long tells another story of a mother who loses a 12-year-old child, and she's standing over the grave, and a very well-meaning friend comes up to her and says, don't worry, it's just a shell. And the mother looks at her, slaps her across the face, and says, until I tell you otherwise, 
She is not a shell. She is my daughter. Friends, we have this instinct that our bodies aren't just shells. That somehow, even when someone dies, their bodies are still important. Where does that come from? It comes from our faith because this is how we were made. This is how God made us. But this problem of the separation of spirit and body, I want to point out that it's not just a problem in our own time. It went back very, very long ago, actually the time that the creed was written. And this line in the creed was actually written in order to try to solve this problem, to try to weed out this kind of thinking that wasn't helpful. So this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, just because I feel like it's important for us to understand where some of this comes from. So, oh, I'm going to go back. Skip a slide. So there was in the thinking, let's see if I um, can, I might have just skipped a slide. Okay, we're just going to not use a slide for this one. So you're just going to have to track with me mentally. So in the time of Jesus, and in the early church when the creed was written, there was this philosophy called Gnosticism. Has anyone heard of it? Gnosticism? Yeah, very good. Okay. So Gnostics said that all the material world, including the human body, is bad. Therefore, a good God couldn't have made a good creation. So there were Gnostics who became Christians, and they applied this framework to Jesus. They said that Jesus' mission was to release people from their bondage to this bad body, this bad world, So Jesus just came to give people secret knowledge that would free their souls to go on to be released from all that is bad. So these Gnostics, they denied a resurrection of the body. You can understand why. Because they thought that created matters, bodies in this earth, were bad. The goal was to escape them, said Gnostics. So it is this thinking that Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians that we just read, it is this kind of thinking that Paul is deliberately addressing. Here he is looking at the Gnostics and saying, hey, listen up. Those who deny the resurrection of the dead pay attention. There really is a resurrection of the dead. And it is this Gnostic way of thinking that the Apostles' Creed was also trying to correct. Because you see, Gnostics couldn't say the Apostles' Creed. They didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead, so they couldn't subscribe to this creed. But friends, despite what we have in the creed and other other teachings, this body-soul dualism has stayed alive and well in Western thought, which is why many of us think according to this framework. A lot of it has to do with Plato, if you're interested in philosophy. Um... But for those of you who aren't, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. But this dualism we know is still very popular today, even in the church. But friends, it's not the historic Christian view. So now we have to address, if that's not the view, what is the Christian view? So, here we go. One, Christians reject as reductionistic the view that human beings are only bodies. I think we all get that, don't we? We all know that there's something deeper going on. This life is not all that there is. But on the other front, 
Christians with equal force reject the idea that human beings are essentially non-material and immortal souls who are just temporarily housed in disposable and somewhat loathsome bodies. That is also not the Christian view, that we are just temporarily housed in loathsome bodies. So what, so what is the view? Well, Christians instead believe that the best way to understand human beings is disclosed in the Genesis account. God takes dust, ordinary dust from the ground, and breathes into it the breath of life. So dust into which God has breathed life. This is what a living human being is. So Christians, to sum up, do not believe that human beings are only bodies, nor do they believe that they are souls who for the time being have bodies. Christians affirm rather that human beings are embodied. What others call the soul and the body, Christians call the breath of God and dust. This, friends, I think is how we're supposed to understand spirit in our text as the breath of God that gives us life without which there is no life now or evermore. And body is dust, the material stuff of which we are made, which isn't bad if God created it. So when it comes to living being spirit and body, breath and dust, they form an inseparable unity. There is no such reality in a Christian lexicon as the real me apart from the embodied me. Just think about Jesus, the true human. He was always body and spirit, even in his resurrected state. It was a different state, a glorified state, but always body and spirit together. Does that make sense a little bit? Minds are still reeling. Some of you still have questions. Some of you aren't buying it. I know. It's okay. We'll keep, we'll keep talking about it. But now, now I want to go to why does this, why does this matter? Is this just a fun mind game to think about what my life might be like after death? I don't think so. I first want to point out the comfort that this gives us. Very practical comfort now. And that is when our loved ones die, we can be assured that we are going to interact with them again in some form of bodily way. So that spouse that has passed on, you might one day be able to kiss them again. That child who died far too soon, you might be able to hold them again. That friend who you miss so dearly, you might just be able to hear their quirky laugh again. Isn't that comforting news? That some way you might be able to touch them again, just as Jesus' disciples touched his resurrected body. That's really comforting. It also gives us comfort that we don't have to fear our own bodily deaths For we know that there is more to come. And friends, this resurrection life is not going to be boring. It's not like you just have to fit everything into this life, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because there's more to come. And it's going to be an embodied existence that is far greater than we can even put our minds around. So that's why in this life we can give ourselves away. We can give away our time and treasure, perhaps even our lives, because we know that this is only the beginning. There is far more to come in the age to come. 
And that age is not going to be disappointing. Never disappointing. There is so much goodness waiting for us. So that's some of the comfort it gives us. But our understanding of the resurrection and life everlasting, it doesn't only give us comfort the future, it also shapes how we think and act now. And that is, we are called to care for whole persons, body and soul alike. So think about Jesus and his ministry. He touched and healed bodies. He formed communities. He spoke out against injustices he saw. These were all very real embodied things that mattered to Jesus. But that's not all he did. If so, if that was his only mission to solve all of the problems in the first century, he didn't do that well because there were still sick people. There were still poor people. But he gave witnesses to what it will be like in the new creation that those will be healed that all communities will be whole and healthy. And this is what Jesus preached about. He preached about a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is coming one day in its fullness when all will be made well. And we get glimpses of it here now, and God invites us to participate in giving witness to this through our love and our peacemaking and our joy and all that we do. We are invited to give witness to this. But it is in many ways a reality that we can't see or touch just yet because it's not here fully yet. That's waiting for us in life eternal. So in our lives, we're called to do the same as Jesus, to care for body and soul alike. And I'm sure that to many of you, this makes really common sense. So many of you do this already this whole person ministry and so you're thinking why are we hammering this home so hard I, I get it so many of you do it already it's really beautiful well i'm i'm emphasizing this why this historic christian view of the whole person body and soul together is is really important because when you go to one extreme or the other there's some really dangerous things that can happen so this part might seem a little heavy, but I want to give you an example of, of what can go wrong when we lose this whole picture. So first, think of the tragic story of slavery in our own country. It's one that really troubled me for a long time in our youth, in my youth, because I know and I've read church history enough to know that many of these slave owners were Christians. Many of them, including the Christians, mistreated their slaves. And we wonder, how does this happen? Just how does that happen? Well, I, I later then read some of the sermons they were listening to and the papers they were writing, and it was very much a Gnostic dualism. Body, soul, completely separate. So they were convinced that as long as they gave their slaves Bibles and let them have worship services so that their souls were okay— they could treat the bodies however they wanted to. But you know what happened when they gave their slaves Bibles? Let them read the stories themselves? They saw that God actually cares about bodies. That it was God who freed his people from slavery in Egypt. That God maybe thought that mistreatment of bodies is not okay and that it's not just about the soul in the afterlife, but right now really matters too. And so maybe, just maybe, God had cared about their bodies. And that maybe, just maybe, God wanted to free them too. So that's one example. 
from our not-too-distant past in our own country. Another comes from the really, really recent history, my own personal experience working with young adults. So we're having a lot of conversation, right, about why aren't young adults in church. We have a few, but yay, great. I'm so glad you're here. But there, there's a large exodus from the church of young adults, and how is this happening? Well, there are a lot of different factors, but as some of you know, I worked for seven years with college students, and I used to hear this kind of thinking a lot, this, this body-soul dualism. And they would tell me, you know what? Like, I've said my prayer. I'm in to eternity, so it doesn't really matter. Like, why go to church? Why work hard at school? Why do anything? Because this life doesn't matter. It's just going to be obliterated. So eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Or to the other extreme, which is really sad, I had several students say that they just wanted to end their lives now. Like, if this life doesn't matter, why just end, Why not just end it and go and be with Jesus? This was a very real problem for young adults. But that's when I got to tell them the whole story of the gospel. I got to tell them that Jesus cares about their body and their soul now and for eternity. That Christ promises to be with us not just in the afterlife, but now in the present. And not only that, but as we read in Revelation 21 and other parts of scripture, it somehow appears that the good things that we do through the Spirit in this life are somehow going to carry over into the next. That the love that we share, that the beautiful art we create, the peace that we work for, if these things are done in Christ by the power of Spirit, there seems to be a promise that they are going to carry over into the new creation. So this life does matter. So the things you do now do have eternal significance. It's not it's just eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die, or utter despair of, um, I just want to end it. It's neither of those. It's life with the triune God now that starts now and continues for eternity. And in my conversation with these students, I would end with these words from the Apostle Paul that end our passage for today. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And my friends, these are the words that I want to leave with you today too. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep loving your family and your friends and your neighbors with everything you've got. I can promise you that death is going to come one day. One day, one of you is going to have to say goodbye, and it's going to be heartbreaking. That's the cost of loving deeply. But that's not the end. Your love in the Lord is not in vain. It will continue into eternity. You are going to see them again. And in your life, whatever God calls you to excel in the work of the Lord, however God calls you to care for bodies and souls alike, even when the work feels insignificant, when you feel like it's not mattering, like it's not making a difference, know that it is not in vain. Whatever God calls you to, God calls you to for a purpose. And it may just have very significant eternal value. Most of all, my friends, hold fast to our belief 
in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. For in this belief, we trust and have hope that death and brokenness do not have the final word, either now or in the age to come. There's no comfort greater than that. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your promises to us that give us hope and comfort beyond our wildest imagining. Give us hearts to receive this comfort and hope from you. Give us courage to live into the lives you call us to, that give witness to this hope that death is not the end, that you, Christ, have resurrected, and you promise to us a resurrection and life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends.